Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Finding a niche within a niche can provide extraordinary returns by reducing risk and ensuring repeated success. Sean Katona specializes in value-add strip centers in Phoenix and focuses on B, A-class assets in specific neighborhoods. This strategy helps him get better deals on the acquisition side and great connections on the leasing side. So today we have with us a man who uh, is in, he is not, thank goodness, in multifamily because I've had so many of those guys on and he is in an asset class that has been out of favor, but we're going to let him talk about that despite the uh, rumors. Um, you know, he is in a fantastic category and just making incredible progress. And we are talking about strip centers and i've been watching so many of his videos and uh and just so intrigued and have been so excited to talk to sean katona who is who is kicking butt in strip center started in single family and uh is a great marketer etc etc sean welcome to street smart success roger excited to be here with you today and uh, hello to everyone tuning in this will be fun you got it well sean i like to ask people about where they're from and all that stuff and you know just because that's me I, i'm not gonna say i love people but i'm very interested in people there's a fine line and uh so i know you went you're a husky and um are you originally uh, a northwest guy from seattle or did you move from somewhere else or what what was the sean upbringing yeah, that's right. Look, you've done your homework. So b- born and raised uh, in Seattle and then went to University of Washington in their business program for a couple of years and landed a gig with Microsoft uh, coming right out of school, uh, which lasted a whopping three days before I was relieved of my position. Three days. I'm not going to say it was an HR violation. No, no, it was, um, it was a team that was in the process of downsizing. So it was just kind of untimely, but I ended up uh, finding another Microsoft position out in Santa Monica, kind of a reverse move that that a lot of people would do coming to work at that company. But it was fun because I could travel back to headquarters to see my family and uh, get exposed to another part of the world and kind of go out on my own, maybe for the first time ever. And I worked on the uh, the Xbox team for a bunch of years there, selling uh, really ad packages to the Fortune 500 marketers. So I think the movie studios and the automotive companies and really anyone who re- wanted to reach an 18 to 34 year old male. So kind of learned the the advertising and marketing industry uh, on the ground with them and then continue to do that with EA Sports and then a mobile startup and all while doing a little bit of moonlighting with real estate and single family and, and house flips along the way before finally going full time and uh, shoot, what was that? 2013, give or take. Got you went full time 2013. I think so. Yeah. Got it. Well, you know, that that 18 to 34 male demo has always and continues to be the most elusive demographic to reach. So that's just a trivial tidbit. And so were you living in Santa Monica? 
Yeah, so I did uh, almost a coastal crawl, Santa Monica, Venice, Hermosa, and I landed in Huntington Beach. So if we follow that trajectory, my next stop's Tijuana. <laughs> I think you got, you got a couple places in between. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you got Laguna Beach would be a nice a nice place. There you go. Del, Del Mar's not bad, La Jolla. It'll be another couple years for sure. Yeah, we 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 talk about, you know, where do you go from here and may, maybe Newport Beach, but it's it's once you've been spoiled with Southern California, you know, the weather and, and all our amenities, it's it's hard to go other places, but um we do travel a lot, so we we get around. Got it. Got it. Um, and so you, so you went full-time 13, you were in, in the houses that you were, I'm, I would assume, I guess you flipped, probably kept some, I, I know, cause you've, I've watched you were those, where were those? Were they, you know, near Santa Monica ish or in other markets? I started out looking all over, you know, greater LA and did a couple deals around here coincidentally, my wife ended up getting a promotion and moved us back to Seattle for 13 months, which I welcomed. And so my business really kicked into overdrive when I moved back home and I just knew all the areas and we we hit it hard. I probably did 30 or 40 deals up there. And that was, you know, mostly flips and wholesale deals. And I did buy a handful of rentals that I held on to. Um, I did a couple new construction projects along the way. I think those are actually LA. And so I did, you know, some in the Pacific Northwest, some down in Southern California, a few in odds and ends. I, I hung on to a couple rentals in Dallas that I bought. Uh, and then on the, the commercial side, we've dabbled in a couple different asset classes and a couple different geographies um, as LPs, um, whereas you know our my my day to day stuff in the shopping centers, I sponsor those deals as the GP. That's pretty exclusively Phoenix, Arizona at this point. Okay, so what was your first uh, shopping center deal? Twenty seventeen, uh, just outside of Phoenix, a little town called Maricopa. I bought a bank owned deal. Um, REO, there was that back then. I'm, I'm looking forward to the days of those coming back around, but uh, that was my first real endeavor. And I had that bank who I bought it from actually turn around and do the loan on it. So that was fun. It almost felt like seller financing, uh, but it was a $2 million purchase price and actually was completely full when we bought it, but all the leases were month to month and we had some tenants struggling and the place was kind of tired and, you know, a, you know, a bank had been managing it. So they certainly hadn't optimized it and we were able to do some things to bump up the NOI and I think ultimately get the property value to about 3.5 million in 18 months, which is when we sold it. Got it. So it was fully occupied, but month to month, and so I guess there's intrinsic risk in that, especially if certain tenants aren't doing well. But you did fantastic with it, obviously. What were the challenges of getting from A to Z? What what did you learn and you know, what did you think it would be versus what was it like, et cetera? Yeah. I don't know if anything was like a major uh you know, unsolvable puzzle. I think in an asset class like that, it's more mom and pop tenants. I shouldn't say asset class. I should say that particular asset. You know, it wasn't on a on a hard corner with 60,000 cars a day going by. So you're not going to land a Starbucks or a Chipotle there. Uh, but rather it's going to be, you know, the local real estate agent, the local insurance agent, the dance studio. You know, we had a smoke shop. Uh, there was a preschool in there. There's the, the salon. Uh, and so you're really just working with 
the folks who live there in that community, who also worked in that community and, and trying to articulate the value proposition of why they, you know, might want to move their shop over here or, you know, the, the value of, you know, signing a five-year lease and stabilizing that rent roll for me. I will say that was a town of about 50,000 people at the time. I'm sure it's grown quite a bit since then. And that's probably as small as I would want to go because, you know, by the time we were done there, I had gotten to know the mayor. Uh, I had, you know, been in with the city a handful of times. I felt like I was seeing a lot of the same names uh, of like, you know, businesses around town. I, I went to some of the, the local meetings there and really just got engaged and involved. Um, and certainly I hired a leasing broker, but, um, you know, that that was not a huge pool of businesses and tenants to pull from. And I definitely like having that now. And so a lot of the stuff that I focus on today is really in Phoenix proper and all those surrounding areas where someone's not having to drive 45 minutes out to get to the property. Because even getting brokers down there to give a tour to their tenants, they're like, eh, well, that's all the way across town. And I've got a couple other meetings today. I'm maybe just not going to add that to the tour list. So that, and then, you know, there's just the, the trivial things with construction and, you know, we did paint, we did parking lot and rebranded it a little bit and did all those lease renewals, attracting the new tenants and, and getting it dialed in so that it was very uh, desirable for a, a 1031 buyer to come along and buy a good coupon clipper at a probably better than a seven cap. I think he was almost an eight cap um, when we, uh, when we landed the deal. You know, I don't know personally a lot about strip centers, but I do know that, you know, what you want is you want kind of some synergy amongst tenants, right? So I can see where in that case, you know, the smoke shop in the preschool probably went well together. <laughs> in fact, the preschool ended up defaulting and I had to, to wish her well, but we took that 3,000 foot space and split it up into three suites. Uh, but yes, you're, you're definitely thoughtful about you know, making sure you don't have the Sin City Center um, you know, with, the, with the, the G-rated one. Right. I think Houston is known for its like zero zoning. So you know, it wouldn't be out of the question in Houston to have basically a, a gentleman's club next to a preschool or, or <laughs> and then next to that, maybe a church. There you go. Well, yeah. hey, I have a question. So you got really involved in the community. You got to know public officials. And, and what was the purpose of that? Was that to, you know, make connections to get the thing leased up? Like, why, why would you do that? Yeah, I mean, the, the a lot of the, the economic development teams uh, in towns are plugged into the small business owners. And, you know, in some cases they have lists of them or they, they know, hey, you know, this person's looking or they've outgrown their space or they're looking for a second location. And so why wouldn't we want to, you know, go in and say hello to those folks and make sure that, you know, we're putting the types of businesses in there that they want to see and that they're going to be supportive of that. Um, especially if we needed, you know, the city on board with some of the approvals or work that was going to get done there, their certificates of occupancy, that type of stuff. And uh, so that was great. And I think it was the shopping center convention uh, where I met them uh, at least on one occasion. But what was fun about that town is they did a ribbon cutting ceremony. And so if you plan it right, you can have city officials come out and the mayor and snap a photo and you know, have a little bit of a press opportunity to go splash out there and put on social media or some of the traditional publications. And uh, I'll take all the PR that I can get to to have folks looking at my spaces inside the shop or at the sh shopping center. You, you are indeed, after all, 
uh, a marketing guy coming out of, um, you know, doing all the stuff with the houses. And I guess you were an LP in some deals as well. What compelled you to acquire a strip center at that time? I started out looking for apartments. Uh, and so that was probably back in 2016, uh, even 2015, like initially kind of getting my feet wet. And I looked all up and down the West Coast, right? I was familiar with Seattle, SoCal. And I was like, you know, find me something good. And I, I just felt like, gosh, I the margins were kind of tight uh, on some of these apartments or I couldn't believe the cap rates that people were paying for them. And that sounds funny to say now, seeing what happens you know, with the value and rents just going insane and all the inflation. I mean, I could have bought anything back then and I would have done great, um, just about. But when I compared that to you know, the commercial or the, the, the retail side of the business, it was probably double the cap rate in a lot of cases, you know, instead of a four cap, I could be walking into an eight cap that maybe had some upside potential that I could turn into a 10, 11 or a 12 cap. And so I thought, you know what, I, I, I like the nature of that. Um, I also like the nature that I could sign a lease that has a five, seven, 10 year term. That's a triple net deal. That's nearly set it and forget it going forward after that. I'm not having to deal with, you know, tenants turning every month and, you know, someone living at the property and all the excitement that comes along with residential real estate, because I'd experienced that in the single family side. Um, and, you know, you're doing a heavy lift up front for some of the something that's almost completely hands off for the next five years to come. So was it a function of and I and I and I get what you're saying, because I've done that myself. Uh, in terms of looking at the market. And I, I'm here right outside of San Francisco, so it's never made sense to me. Um, and I first started looking, I was going to 1031, a, a duplex I had lived in in San Francisco. And, you know, and I, I just, I just it never made sense to me to do. Of course, I wish I had, and, and then I'd be worth, you know, another 10 million right now, but <laughs> so, 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 so be it. But coming out of like your background up until that point, well, actually, I was going to ask a different question. The question is this. How did you, what was it a function of you being on, uh, you know, websites, whether it be a loop net or wherever, and you're just, you eventually go, you know what, uh, the, the, the multifamily stuff is just, it doesn't pencil. Let me, tr let me just, just out of curiosity, go to another category and see what that looks like. And then you're like, oh, wow, there's some meat on the bone or did, did somebody tell you? Or like, I was just wondering what spurred you to go, aha, this makes a lot more sense. How did you find the category? Yeah, uh, I, I'd been going to a commercial real estate mastermind group and a lot of the guys in that room had kind of gravitated towards retail too. You know, maybe half the deals that we were looking at were retail. And then, you know, you had people doing apartments and storage and mobile home parks and, you know, some office too and industrial. So that's, that's still the case today, but it's just like, wow, I'd seen so many of my buddies cash in seven figure checks and, you know, just, just gobs of cash flow out of this retail category that it kind of goes, Hey, it's worth my time to, to look at this and look at apartments across these markets. Although, uh, you know, now I'd, I'd coach up my younger self a little bit that I really needed to, to tighten it up a little bit. Trying to look across the whole West Coast at a couple different asset classes is a, a lot of deals to cover. And I was, I was not an expert at anything at that point. And so, you know, compare that to today, I focused almost exclusively on retail 
and almost entirely in Greater Phoenix. You know, I know the rents off the top of my head. I know the cap rates. I know, you know, almost all the deal-making brokers in town and lenders and vendors and and almost that specialization, I think, has helped me be more efficient or maybe recognize some opportunities as opposed to trying to be the the generalist. It's it's hard to imagine someone from out of state is going to swoop in and, you know, get the deal of a lifetime with no track record and, and no history operating in that market. Whereas, you know, today I'm getting insider pocket listings from brokers that I've now got relationships with that have been paid, you know, nice commission checks. And I'm spending a lot of energy to try and become their favorite landlord that they both bring the tenants and the deal flow to. Interesting. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Well, a couple things. I would rest. I'm an LP guy and uh, I do this podcast to learn and, and then my listeners learn. And, uh, and then also I've invested with a number of people that have been on my podcast. And one of the most profound things I've heard in the last handful of months, just the saying, it's this, I would rather invest with somebody that's done one thing 10,000 times as opposed to invest with one person that's done 10,000 things. Right. So I, I love I, what I think. <laughs> yeah. Love what you're doing. I've, I've adopted the same philosophy because I've invested with my friends now because they are absolute experts at both their their asset class and their geography. You know, I've invested with one buddy in St. Louis on an apartment building because he's done an incredible job in that market. A different friend uh, up in New England doing storage units, uh, and then another friend doing mobile home parks. And and it's just that it's like you guys are exceptional at what you're doing here. I'm not going to do it any better. And I'm happy to write a check to, you know, have the returns, the depreciation and the diversification in our portfolio. Yeah. And and you're just doing in Phoenix. And then the other thing is, and I, I try not to talk too much in, on this, but you've really kind of got me excited because I, I try to focus it all on you. But you'll like what I'm going to say is one of the probably, frankly, to, to be crude about it, richest guys I've done a podcast with one of the richest guests is a guy he's based in Palo Alto just as you you know where Palo Alto is of course you do uh and he and he's an older guy and he's, he's in his 60s but for over 30 years all he's been doing is grocery anchored 100,000 square foot centers within two hours of San Francisco and, you know, when you when you're an investor or when you're an operator, you mitigate so much risk when you do that and you just become n- nobody's going to come into, you know, at some point in time. And even maybe now nobody's going to go into Phoenix and do what you do better. And you're going to be more competitive than 
you know, let's say some institutional money starts to get into your space, which probably isn't right now. But, you know, if it keeps doing incredibly well, I think it's only a matter of time and you'll you will be more competitive than they are because you you know it so incredibly well. And so my hands off to you and, and, you know, boy, picking Phoenix was ingenious. You know, I mean, as you know, (laughs) uh, my goodness, when you bought that first center, Sean, you know, coming out of residential, how much like had you not had that? experience prior to that real estate experience, what would have been like acquiring a center and kind of get it, you know, operating it the way you did? How much of that knowledge was transferable? I think helpful for sure, but maybe not, you know, absolutely necessary. I I remember my lender saying things like, you know what, we just like the fact that you've done a lot of real estate. Um, you know, I think by then I'd had 70 some transactions under my belt. Uh, I'd managed property remotely, which is always their other concern. Wait a minute. How is someone in Southern California going to turn around a shopping center in, you know, in, in Arizona? And I wasn't even using third party property management at that time. So that's, that's, you know, definitely something that bankers ask every time we're, we're doing a deal now. But, you know, ma- managing contractors, working with brokers, working with tenants, you know, I, I probably, I got a lot of reps in negotiating. And so that helps me both on the leasing side. And then, you know, that property was listed for 2.6 million. And I came in well below two to eventually strike a deal at 1.95. And so if you can create that kind of value on the front end and buy at that discount, I mean, that's, that's something that I may not have had the, the reps or the cojones to, to go for if I hadn't done it so many times on smaller residential deals. Um, and maybe why that deal sat for as long as it did on LoopNet. It like really needed to be grinded down and it had an insane 11 month escrow because we had to split off part of the building where the bank owned their own location. So that was, that was just a process. And, you know, I learned a lot of probably lessons the hard way in, in residential, uh, adult babysitting contractors that, um, have been helpful on the, on the commercial platform today too. So it's, it's, it's handy. And I think it, it probably gave that banker a little more confidence, but you know, we, if we really pushed, you know, my, my wife and I were both, you know, making a good income. We had good credit. We were, you know, lendable. It would have just been that resume and the experience. And could you get your banker comfortable? I bet if I put third party property management on it, that was local. Even if I had no experience, they'll probably give it a go. I mean, think about how many first time commercial real estate buyers are out there just because they've done well financially, right? Sitting on a few million bucks and need to park it somewhere smart. Exactly. How did you negotiate it down to to two or 1.9 plus? I think I started low uh, and then countered them back a couple times and then, you know, made as compelling of a case as I could on the due diligence uh, part of the deal. So it's it's been a while now, but I'm, I'm sure I, you know, picked apart everything that I could on deferred maintenance and then, you know, talked about the the uh, the viability of some of the tenants and then, you know, would, was willing to work on their timeline. Uh, they're also doing the loan. And so that that probably created a, a good situation for them where, hey, it's actually going to make us money instead of be on the wrong side of the, the balance sheet. I think all those things probably helped. Uh, and maybe just being, you know, the the right place at the right time. I, I I vaguely recall them trying to get it closed before the end of their fiscal year. It's like, all right, if you can do it by this deadline, you know, we'll we'll concede on the price a little bit. I see. What percentage you have to put down? 
25, I think. So I, I raised, you know, give or take 500 grand from a couple of friends. Um, we were able to keep a, a healthy chunk of the, the equity. I think it was 66%, give or take, that we owned the deal and still deliver phenomenal returns to all the LPs. So that was fun. Life-changing for us and, and good returns for them. Happy ending uh, for everybody. When was it built and how, how many tenants were there? I think it was 2006-ish and probably a dozen tenants. You know, we devised, demised that one space from a thousand feet down into three 1,000 foot units. So that kind of changed the numbers a little bit. So it, this was not an old property. I mean, this was uh, really only 10 years old-ish. Yeah. And, and, and I love that, right? I, I like buying something that's got good bones, um, that maybe is looking tired or, or mismanaged, but it really is the kind of the, the ugly duckling, but in an otherwise great area. It had good visibility from the road. It had, you know, decent traffic count. You could get in and out of the, the property well. And so kind of checked all the boxes and you put your tenant hat on for a minute and you go, Hey, you know, what I want to locate here. Yeah. This is a spot that I could probably fill up. And there's a lot of deals that I look at that I just go, man, I think this is functionally obsolete or it was built the wrong way. It struggled since it was built. And I don't know if it can be turned around. And I don't know if my time is best spent on a deal like that. And I, I toured one two days ago in Surprise, Arizona. I was, just, I was just thinking, I don't know if it can be saved. Since the day it was built, it's been less than half full. And when was it built? Oh, that new one, 2008. Oh, oh, and it's just they, they've never been able to get it more than half uh, occupied, huh? It's still in gray shell, you know, and, and, and that's another thing is like, you know, so many tenants don't want to wait, you know, six to 12 months to get open or they've left it to the last minute where they're kind of scrambling to get out of their current space into a new one. And they, they can't be out for that long of a period of time. They really need a turnkey space, which is kind of tricky in retail because most folks are really specking their suite out custom for their business. And so it doesn't make sense to, to build it out on spec when, you know, you have a laundromat versus a nail salon, completely different, you know, requirements in there. I talked to a guy about a month ago who's been doing uh, strips for like 20 years and he's out of South Florida, like Fort Lauderdale. And he, he, um, he'll do older stuff. You know, it's just part of his model. He doesn't do TI because he wants tenants to kind of be bought in. And he's like, you know, he could put up, uh, you know, he, he couldn't put in a lot of money into TI and then they go belly up a, a, a year later and there's nothing you can do to collect, you know, hold them to the lease, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you deal with TI? I like TI because I can usually use that to buy up the rent rate. And so if I'm, I'm getting $18 rents instead of $12, you can do the math. Hey, that's 50% more on the NOI than I otherwise would have had. And if I can turn around and sell that at a six cap, you do the math on what doing that, that TI allowance is worth and we can create tremendous value there. You invest an extra 50 grand to make an extra 500. You do that all day long if you're not getting too far out over your ski tips. And so there is that sweet spot where you're saying, how much of a risk am I willing to take on this person? 
If it's Starbucks and Chipotle, you know, you probably feel very confident. If it's, you know, a dreamer with no money, no credit, no experience, you know, I will do a, a minimal TI package or, you know, maybe you require double the security deposit or just something to help them out a little bit. But, you know, you're, you're saying, hey, how big of a risk am I willing to take on this person? Five grand, 10 grand? Uh, you know, I may not make that back for a, a year or two. And it depends too, if, you know, if you're a pure buy and hold guy, I'd probably think about that a little bit differently than if I was, you know, looking at testing the market and, and, you know, selling for a seven figure profit. Now it's really the concern of the next owner, uh, that the, 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 the durability of that tenant. And, you know, they need to look at that when they're doing due diligence too. He's strictly a buy and hold guy. Right. And, and I bump into a lot of owners who, you know, just don't want to write the check because it takes them so long to make that money back. Why would they? But that's also another reason why some of their properties sit vacant for a long time. You know, if, if you can't give anyone the TI allowance and the landlord across the street is, you know, where's the tenant going to want to go? And if I'm willing to pay full commission to the brokers uh, and maybe even a little broker bonus, you know, which, which site's going to become the broker's favorite? Do you have a dollar you know, per square foot amount that you generally put into TI or does it vary? You know, like some of my uh, lower rent areas will be, you know, five bucks a foot uh, might be the the market, um, you know, 10. But, you know, I, I was looking at a, a deal the other day where it's medical. They need $120 a foot now to get their place built out, but they will pay the rent that makes that make sense. And so, holy smokes, I can double, you know, my, my rent here by buying it up with that TI package, you know, sign a 10 year deal with a doctor or a dentist. Uh, and that's something that you probably have pretty good confidence in. They're going to personally guarantee it. Uh, they're making a substantial investment themselves. And then usually it's done where they're fronting the money and then getting reimbursed for us. So, uh, it's, it's not, they, they certainly have some skin in the game and I try and make it where, you know, they they still are out of pocket, uh, you know, a very healthy chunk, just like you would with a down payment, right? So, hey, you know, I'm going to cover half your construction costs here, but, you know, they, they will be very invested. Sounds, uh, I mean, it makes a, a, a ton of sense. In the market of Phoenix, since that's where you are, how many people out there that are doing what you're doing at approximately the same scale? And so, again, my frame of reference is, multifamily because it's just it seems like there's so many guys doing it and they're crawling all over each other i mean plus plus money from out of town and etc but how many people are doing it just in phoenix like you are probably a lot less in retail than in the multifamily space um I, i don't have a great grasp of the number but then there's also like 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 all the asset classes, like the tier that you're playing in, right? Are you going for class C centers in Mesa or are you going for, you know, the Whole Foods anchored 100,000 foot center on Main and Main in Scottsdale? It's probably not the same type of owner. Um, and then you've got the mom and pops versus, you know, the, in- the institutional, the guys who just focus on that market versus nationally. Uh, and, and so it, you'd almost have to, maybe break it down by niche, you know, institute. 
Uh, it'd be hard to say. You know, I, I, I just got back from the shopping center convention in Vegas and there was 20,000 attendees there to give you some sense. And that's everyone from vendors and lenders and brokers and principals and tenants. And if you're in this business, you pretty much go to that convention. You know, unless you're only doing neighborhood deals and you don't need any exposure to the, that national, you know, tenant or, or, or operation, uh, you're there. And that peaked at, I don't know, 30 or 40,000 people. If you were to go to all the multifamily conferences, what would that look like? I don't know. Smaller. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But then again, I was at one in February. It was like 1500, but it was way, but you don't have national tenants. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a different, it's, it, you know, you don't have Starbucks going there and, you know. Yeah, Whole but Foods. I'm just saying that's the, that's kind of the global size of, of the group. And you're not going to have every, you know, independent landlord showing up there either. I see what you're saying. Okay. But yeah, that's the Super Bowl of shopping center conventions. And so if you grabbed every, you know, multifamily participant out there put them in a room. Yeah, it's probably substantially bigger. Yeah. I I I okay. Get the point. Um, and, and so you were saying, Hey, you know, you could have a, a guy doing C class in Mesa, you have somebody doing Maine and Maine in Scottsdale. So I guess what is your, what's, what's, uh, down the middle of the fairway for you? I ask myself that every year, uh, like where, where do we want to go? Like, where's the best use of our time? And, you know, this year I said, I'm expanding the buy box a little bit because I, w- I'm, I haven't been able to buy as much as I want to because I'm very selective. You know, the stuff that I've bought, we've, we've been able to increase the value by more than 50% every single time I've, I've been spoiled, but selective. And so that historically has been, you know, two to five million ish. I I said, now I should go two to 12 uh, because we've got the capacity, you know, to, to borrow that much debt, to, to, to put in that much equity. Uh, And then, you know, I'd probably like to buy the B minus center and turn it into an A minus if I can do that. Um, you want to be in the growth neighborhoods wherever possible. So for me, that's, you know, Chandler and, and Gilbert and Tempe, uh, Queen Creek is on fire, you know, maybe less so the stuff up in the Northwest part of the, the town. And, you know, I'm not necessarily going to Maine and Maine and Scottsdale because those are almost trophy pride of ownership properties where people are happy just to own them and say, hey, that's my baby, even if I'm only getting a 4% return, because uh, I can get probably double that in some of these other towns. Yeah, because in other words, I'm already filthy rich and now just this is a yeah. place to put my money. <laughs> You're happy to play defense, you know, rather than I'm, I'm really trying to accumulate a lot bigger base here and keep going. Right, exactly. And now your capacity, uh, is that a function of, of both equity and debt? So you're able to, you've built your network out. So you got more people that you know who you are and got a bigger pool of investors and, and so can come up with more equity and therefore get more debt or. Yeah. And it's probably also my personal comfort level more than anything. Ah. And, and so I don't, I don't think I'd encourage someone to do their very first deal at 10 million. Although, you know, if you're accustomed to that in the apartment side, you go, oh, no problem. We do 30 million deals all day, all day long. I just, there's been nothing that I've bought that would take me down personally if it went long or went sideways. And I've kind of, kind of stayed in that, in that 
comfort zone or that safety net that, hey, I could buy out my investors. I could backstop it. I could carry this thing for a long time if I had to. And, you know, I'm always thinking about, you know, the downside risk that could happen. Like, what if it doesn't go according to plan? You know, how will we weather the storm? Uh, and so, you know, as our net worth has grown and, and some of our reserves, you know, that, that number's kind of creeped up a little bit. And, and not, not just, you know, doing one of those a year, but I'd like to buy four and sell one maybe. And so we're putting a nice plop of cash in the bank, getting our investors to cycle their money, uh, but also growing cash flow, growing the asset base, and you know, maybe going up a notch in quality, both from a tenant standpoint and a location standpoint each time to eventually I'll just be sitting in Scottsdale on, on great assets <laughs> yeah. or Newport beach for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Where you're down to a three, probably not at a three cap, but, but a four cap <laughs> when well, interest rates are going up too. But, but I think we're, we're saying the same thing. And one of the beautiful things of doing what you're doing, which I've, I've think I've seen you refer to in, in your videos is it not only is the cap rate considerable higher than a number of other asset classes, for example, self-storage or maybe even mobile home parks, frankly, at this point, or, you know, multi this and that. But there's also more cash on cash on the front end. So you're effectively making money as you're improving the centers. And so I think you said that, and you can always correct me if I'm wrong. If I am correct, what kind of cash on cash do you get going into, you know, uh, on the front end at a a B minus center in, in, you know, a Gilbert Chandler ish area? Yes and no. Cause like, if you think about the Maricopa example I gave earlier, that one was nice to start with because it was already cash flowing and occupied. And I think I started out better on day one and I went through the lull of losing that tenant and then backfilling them. And, you know, you're shelling out broker commission and a TI allowance. So really, I, I feel like for the first year of ownership, I'm just writing checks rather than collecting them. But I'll give you the flip side of that. I just bought a vacant drugstore in Tempe with no tenants. So you know, I'm sitting there bleeding from day one. Uh, but in, in terms of, you know, the cash on cash in relation to cap rate, you know, that's, that's kind of a function of what you can get your interest rate for and how much leverage you want to put on there. So you know, I'm, I'm, let's say I buy something at a six cap, but I lease it up, double the income. I turn it into a 12 cap. Uh, and then I, you know, either refinance or, or, you know, put the right amount of leverage on there. Yeah, it can it can get to be pretty exciting in terms of your cash on cash returns. Yeah, and it and it doesn't, you know, doesn't have to take, you know, years and years and years to get there. In fact, historically for me, it's been as fast as fourteen months and as long as eighteen months to get any deal fully occupied and or even sold. Is uh, about as long as it's taken me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's. You know, on day one, 18 months feels like a long time, but it really isn't. Um, so you bought a vacant drug store in Tempe. What, what's the story on that? Who, who was the prior tenant and what's the play there? Yeah, once upon a time, it was an Osco, uh, which I think got bought out by CVS. And then there was a CVS across the street. And, and then Walmart took a run at it and did the neighborhood market kind of grocery concept, which didn't work out. And so they went dark and continued paying for many years, but uh, it hadn't been retenanted since then. So it's been vacant for a long time. We actually had, within our 60 days of due diligence, had gotten to both LOI and even a lease, a redlined lease with a tenant. And so I was in a position where I could actually close 
with a tenant in my back pocket. Sadly, that deal died at the one yard line. We had we had probably six rounds of red line lease revisions. I think the the brokers were getting ready to send over their commission invoice and they walked from the deal. Uh, so that was that was a, a tough week for me. But we're back at it uh, with another tenant now, and uh, I can't announce it yet. But you know, they'd be able to take the the entire site, and so we're working with the city of Tempe to you know, get the uh, the appropriate approvals and the support of the neighbors uh, to hopefully be able to make that announcement here in the coming months of of what that new use is expected to be. How how big is the property? It's a sixteen thousand five hundred foot box which are tough to demise, by the way. And so you almost need someone to take the whole thing or, you know, really have your your demise figured out or even, you know, scrape it and figure out if there's a better use for it because there's already a drugstore across the street. So on the deal, and you've, you've got, you know, dude, you've got some risk tolerance, clearly. Um, <laughs> so on that deal, when you got into contract, I'm assuming, but I shouldn't assume, did, did you have uh, that tenant on the line at that point or did that, that potent, the one that fell through, or did that potential tenant materialize? I mean, you would have gone the whole distance on this thing, got it into the end zone without a tenant, correct? That was originally what you're thinking. Yeah. I mean, the, the day came where we're about to go hard on the deal. The lease was not yet you know, signed. Uh, and we really had to make a, a decision. And it, and it was that, like, how confident am I in this site? Am I in, you know, finding another tenant? Are, are you, do you love it enough that you'll close it on spec and hope that you can do it? And I waffled. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It was kind of a, a moment of uh, of truth. And, and hopefully we made the right call. You know, if, if this deal comes through, the building will be worth five million bucks. What'd you buy oh, it for? And I bought it, and I bought it for two six. Ah, nice. So we, we will have, you know, doubled it with a single lease. Um, if not, I've had probably four offers to buy it for over 3 million. And so I could probably make the quick nickel, but you know, I know that there's $2 million in upside on this property and it's an awesome neighborhood on a hard corner. You know, it's, I, I think it's just more a matter of time to find the use, even if this one didn't materialize and making sure that, you know, I've set my investors and my wife's expectations <laughs> for how long it's going to take to to get it cash flowing. But but your and I ask the dumb questions because I am dumb. I don't I don't have ex, too, I don't have the experience that you have. So just to clarify, Sean. So when you first got into contract, though, it was spec. I mean, you, you yes. yeah, okay, all right. Just, it, and it was vacant, and and we knew it. But you know what I'm doing is spending half my energy and due diligence going, hey, uh, let me really make calls to all my brokers that I know in town and all the tenant reps and get a feel for, you know, who's looking. And I kept on the leasing broker, you know, that had, had worked with the property for a few years. So he already had a pretty good pulse and he's got 40 or 50 listings around town. So he knows, you know, who's looking and, and the types of users to go after. And we did a lot of outreach to those guys to just get a good grasp of what we what we were walking into and how hard is this going to be or uh you know what we ended up with was three users circling you know all at the same time going man i feel like the uh, the prom queen here we're getting to pick and choose you know which horse we want to bet on and who do we like from a rent standpoint and a credit worthiness and you know do we want to put two tenants in here or one and a lot of those things that were discussed so if you had all of a sudden you had this interest 
uh, the broker community reached out. Why had it been? Why had it been vacant as long as it had been? Yeah, that's my question. I think Walmart paid for many years while they were dark for the prior owner. And then there was a group that came in and tried to do, I want to, I want to say assisted living maybe. Uh, and that did not have the support of the neighbors in the city. And they were maybe trying to go vertical, like four stories there. So really kind of changing what it was. Um, so I, I don't know if it's had really a, a fair shot on the market. In fact, that's something that I heard from brokers. Hey, you know, we, <laughs> you caught this before we saw it and we'd be happy to buy it off you. <laughs> How much do you need to make to walk away from it? I see. So exciting, exciting stuff. How did you find it? Uh, I had just bought another deal with that broker, um, maybe two months prior. And I told him, Hey, I'm, I'm hungry for more. I want to do five this year. You know, anything that you can find that's got lots of upside and meat on the bone, uh, is something that I want to take a look at. And so I was, I think one of his first calls and, you know, that's, probably a, a theme and a philosophy for me now is how do we become that to more and more brokers around town? Because, you know, no one can cover the entire market, but, you know, everyone's got a handful of, you know, tenants that they're working with or, or landlords or, you know, knows a, a couple of folks or, uh, you know, grandma's now managing this, you know, rather than the husband or it's getting taken over by three grandkids who have no experience. And this is starting to fall apart. You know, who do they make the call to at that point? Very good. And and again, your penetration there is concentrated as it is. You know, your momentum is just going to grow and grow and grow and you're just going to be a magnet for deals. I mean, I, I would think at some point because you seem pretty highly focused and determined and aggressive and um, my my hat's off to you. What would be some what what are gotchas in in the process here? You know what what, what would one stub one's toe on and go? Oh boy, I, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, that's a good question. The stuff that I'm staying away from is the stuff that's really hard to lease up. You know, so it's 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 exciting if you can buy a vacant building and fill it up with a tenant and double the value of it in a year. If you can't fill it up, you know, you've really, you've really, you know, face planted there. And so I, I think if, if someone maybe didn't have a lot of experience in this, they might go, oh, hey, I've got a great deal here, um, but there's no tenant demand or it doesn't have the visibility or it doesn't have the traffic or the car count uh, or just, you know, the fundamentals that any halfway smart tenant would look for doesn't exist or you've got you know a functionally obsolete building i'll give you an example you know a lot of tenants are going to smaller footprints you know smaller stores uh and kind of embracing this omnipresent model it's like yeah you know people got to come in and check some stuff out and touch it but you know half of them order online anyway so we don't need sixty thousand feet anymore we can get away with twenty thousand and so I don't, I don't prefer to have big boxes with a much smaller tenant pool to lease up unless I've got that tenant in my back pocket. Um, but rather, you know, if you're leasing up a 
1200 or 2000 foot box, there's a lot of users who want to be in that size, you know, uh, and, and take advantage of the, the foot traffic and the car count and, you know, the, the population density there and everyone coming in and out of the grocery store and the gym next to it, uh, that, you know, those nail salons and those donut shops and those barber shops are all going to be doing great business because of those fundamentals. And maybe you'd say, you know, get in the path of progress too. Um, when you see tons and tons of housing being built and lots of jobs coming to areas, the people go there and the retailers follow. If you're, if you're buying something in an area that's declining in population, that just lost major employers, you know, that isn't, you know, cooperating with landlords, that's impossible to get, you know, your permits and your certificate of occupancies, that's, that's painful. Are you seeing any movement in price over the last couple months? Big time. Big um, time. Well, actually, actually, I take that back. I think the price is lagging the interest rates right now. Uh, and brokers are trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Landlords are probably coming to terms with, with this new reality and people getting into negative leverage situations. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah, we've had historically low cap rates for probably the last, yeah, I'm thinking about the last four months. I think that's where we hit the peak. And all of a sudden, you know, loan quotes are coming in at 5.5% interest and you're buying a four cap. Okay. Uh, you got to put a lot of money down to make sense of that. Or, you know, you're, you're kind of working with cash buyers at that point. And, you know, landlords that are scrambling to maybe sell if they hadn't, uh, or they thought they could realize that five cap and now it's kind of crept up to a six cap. And that's a big swing on the value of a property. You know, it's not just 1%. It's going from five to 6%. What does that work out to be? 17% difference in, in value. Yeah, which is immensely significant. Do you have a predisposition one way or another to, if you had the same credit worthiness of a, and that takes on a different connotation, but if you got somebody with a strong financial, the same financial wherewithal, one is a national tenant and one is a local mon pa, so it's like it's a restaurant that's absolutely crushing it, which would you prefer yeah. to deal with? I think you're going to always have a, a higher value. If the rent is the same, you're probably going to get a much higher value on the national credit tenant. Because if you take that out to the market and you say, hey, would you rather own a Chipotle or Roger's Tacos? You know, most buyers are going to have more confidence in Chipotle. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the little caveat that I'll throw in on that was uh, behaviors during COVID and rent relief and you had the big boys really throwing their weight around and, and kind of saying hey you know we're we are a national credit tenant with all these locations this is how we're going to handle this situation um we're not paying and you know you had mom and pops that said i got my whole life into this business my life savings my wife works here we are fighting every day to make it through this and we're going to continue to work with you and so you almost you almost felt like the mom and pops were more invested and that they had a lot more to lose than an employee, you know, ultimately working at a fortune 500 company. Yeah. And I, and I've heard they don't, they don't negotiate. This is what I've heard. They don't 
always negotiate as much and as hard on the front end. They could get a de- they could get the lease. They don't they don't take months and months with legal to get a lease signed, and they're just uh, and they, and they you know so they sometimes pay more, and it's just they're just easier to do business with. I couldn't agree more. It's 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 um it gives you a lot of gray hair, you know, getting a lease signed <laughs> with a national credit tenant and you're almost at the mercy of the legal teams and how many rounds of revisions and how backlogged is that attorney and your attorney and uh, the fun uh, nuances of the broker's involvement versus the attorney's involvement versus the principal's involvement. Uh, everyone's got their two cents to add to each clause of the 45 page lease. Exactly. Um, so t- turning the corner and we- we've had, I've, we've had such a nice conversation as far as I'm concerned. Hope the feeling's mutual. Here's, yeah. okay, good. So here's a question. I don't think somebody's asked you and, and I didn't make the question up, but I loved it. I listened to another podcaster that asked it and I thought it was so, such a good question. And here it is, Sean, is that what is something people don't know about you? Oh, um, (laughs) I I feel like I've put in so much out there to the world, you know, between between, you know, your social media posts and maybe people put their best foot forward. It's just like our nature to want to post the highlights more than the lowlights. Maybe something recent and kind of fun is I've become obsessed with pickleball. Uh, I played for two and a half hours this morning. I just got turned on to it uh, in a trip in Hawaii in March and just found it was fun. I was playing, you know, with my wife, with another couple. You're rotating, you know, three other couples in there. So it's just got this fun kind of balance of social plus athletic, but it's not like so crazy where you can still carry on a conversation and, you know, you might even have a cocktail in between rounds. So it, it it's literally kind of struck a sweet spot for me. It's almost replaced golf. And I think I have a lot more fun doing that right now than uh, just about any other uh, kind of recreational activity. So that's, that's a fun one. And I don't know, there's all this stuff with the kids and, you know, we like, lo- we like traveling. We've got a fun, fun uh, set of trips set up for this year to kind of recharge and have a little bit of time to to just me and my wife uh, to reconnect as a couple uh, versus the kids dominating everything in our life because we've got a five-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl and uh, they they are a blast but also require a lot of your attention <laughs> yes kids have a tendency of doing that uh, well I will say this from experience it does go fast one question I didn't ask you just a detail a data point how many centers do you own right now at the moment, I have five buildings in in Greater Phoenix. I, I sold a couple of them though recently. So I just sold our Tucson deal. I just sold a deal in Goodyear before that. And that Maricopa one was all the way back in 2018. And then there's still the, uh, you know, the, the passive deals that we're invested in outside of Phoenix. We still hung on to a couple of our single family rentals in Dallas, and we actually have our old townhome here in Huntington Beach. So that's what the portfolio looks like, still very manageable. Maybe what's what's different than some folks that I've met who do a lot of their syndications is that, you know, we we don't have a ton of investors, you know, on, on any deal. It's four or five friends that we might own it with. And, you know, we've we've kept a lot of the equity on those deals. Um, and so I'm I'm at the moment, okay with that model where I have less people to answer to and less to manage, but still, you know, 
decent amount of income and, and equity creation and upside potential. Sounds like you're a wise man. Um, <laughs> no, what, what I mean by that is, you know, on a personal level, I think a lot of times people, they just get caught up in acquiring and growing for ego purposes. That's me. Maybe I'm just projecting. So when I say that it's ingenious or whatever I said, it doesn't sound like you buy off on that and that you value things like your family and you're not willing to basically put you behind being successful. You're considering your own, you know, like mental health and priorities and balance. I mean, I mean I'm assuming a lot there, but but that's the way it feels to me, which I think is ingenious. No, I mean, it's something that we think a lot about and we've seen, you know, some friends and even folks that we've invested with and you look at the, the you know, mega operations and it's like, man, they've got 40 people on payroll and a huge beast to feed. And, you know, you, you, you start, you know, going through the, the, the question series, like, you know, how much is it going to take? And, you know, what, what, when is enough enough? And okay, once you've hit that, then what? You go, you know, have a nice house in Huntington Beach and play pickleball a couple times a week and pick your kids up from school at, you know, four o'clock and take trips to, you know, the best places in the world. It's like, okay. Uh, and, 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 you know, maybe if I, put the pedal to the metal and went buck wild buying a billion dollars of real estate, I'd have those things and a jet. <laughs> but, but, you know, a lot of that could be realized today, you know, versus, you know, really putting it off and, and maybe dealing with so much more drama and complexity. So I, 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 we do think about that. I think I need to, to get you know, to the point where my wife feels good about walking away from her career and that we've got, you know, gobs of reserves in the bank and tons of cash flow. But she, uh, we've, we've thought about, you know, staying bank lendable and banks sure like her W-2 income a lot. So uh, today that's what that looks like, uh, but we'll, we'll see, we'll see it. It probably changes every year, especially as these kids keep growing so fast. Yeah, that could definitely happen. And, you know, you'll, you'll just follow it where it leads, but, you know, clearly you've got good instincts and, um, you know, you, you, you've got your feet on the ground and, you know, but you're not out doing things to, to basically compensate and et cetera. I'm going to read you a quote about money and how much is too much. And I'm quoting it from a, uh, tweet from the strip mall guy. And it's just funny about money because it's all about, it's never enough. And here's the quote is if Bill Gates woke up tomorrow with Oprah's money, he'd jump out a freaking window. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you mention him because I read another, I've become obsessed with that that Twitter account. And his one from this morning was, somebody reading this tweet has $100 million and feels like, they have nowhere nearly enough money. Right. Uh, and Exactly. Uh, th- this guy cracks me up because he's telling the truth and he's, I think he's doing it anonymously, but um, I, I laugh uh, at, at, at least every other one of his posts pretty hard. Yeah. And it's part of the same string and it's, uh, it's saying the same point, which is just hilarious. Anyway, we're going on and on and on. You've been so generous with your time. I know you're not out, you know, s- you know, clawing and scratching for as many investors as you can get. But if one were to get it, want to get a hold of you, Sean, how would they do that? 
Well, and and even just say hello, you know, check in. Um, I love it when people connect with me on LinkedIn because I can just get a better context of kind of who they are and their background. So please look me up on LinkedIn, Sean Katona, S-E-A-N-K-A-T-O-N-A and, and connect with me. I'd love to meet you. And then anything, you know, work-related is on simplifiedproperties.com, my website. So our current deals are up there. You know, the investor process, there's an investor opt-in list. My buying criteria is up there if you have any brokers tuning in and all my contact info and social media is there as well. Fantastic. Sean, I appreciate it so much. And uh, this has been every bit as good as I thought it would be. Awesome job, Roger. Pleasure to spend the time with you. Yep. Talk to you soon. See you later. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>